Good morning. It's good to see everybody here. John, I just want you to know, John Green, before you went up there, I almost said, preach a sermon if you want to. So I just, I'm being dead serious. I'm not joking with you. So before you come up to me after the service and say, I don't know if I did good or I talked too much, just everybody know, I thought you did good. All right? You got to, you got to, you got to. You gotta love. You gotta love having a retired pastor here. He'll keep me straight. That's for sure. Today we're going to go through the last plague of Egypt. Our sermon is entitled "Death and Deliverance." And if you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus 10, or excuse me, Exodus uh, 12, Exodus 12. I'll give you the verses in just one second. Exodus 12, and it's 21 through 42. Of Exodus 12. I'll be honest with you, I've been thrown off a couple times today. So usually that means God's doing something. So uh, let's 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 see what God's about to do, y'all. Exodus 21. Let's start. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, "Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb." Take a bunch of hessop and dip it in blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads in worship. And the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And at midnight the Lord struck down the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go out from among my people, you And the people of Israel, go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they let them have what they asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And from the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Saco, and 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened. But they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. And the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And it was a night of watching by the Lord to them bring out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. 
Soderner Truth traveled across 19th century America sharing her experiences of slavery. Often to crowds that were hostile or even violent towards her, she told them stories from her captivity. Once a woman even said to her, I would rather be bit by a mosquito than hear you talk anymore about slavery. We don't even care about it. Smiling, she said, Lord willing, I'll at least keep you scratching. Her and others like her served for years to see slavery end in America. But God hates slavery. God hates racism and bigotry of all forms, any kind of prejudice. In our story today, God finally rescues his people from generations of slavery and bondage in Egypt. He frees his people by preparing them, defending them, and delivering them. But how does God free his people today? First, God prepares us. Look at verses 21 to 28. Then Moses called out the elders of Israel and said, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clan and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hessop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two boar posts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall get out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You'll say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads in worship. The people of Israel went and did as the Lord had commanded, just as Moses and Aaron, so they did. See, often God prepares his people for the next season of life and ministry by directing them through the challenges of today. God tends to teach us lessons consecutively, cumulatively, through the experiences of living out our faith. Let me give you some examples. Basic training didn't prepare me to be a military member. Seminary didn't fully prepare me to be a pastor. And all the books and all the suggestions and all the family member advice doesn't prepare you to be a parent until you're a parent. You see, it's our life-lived experiences where God shapes and molds us. It's not just our preparation and our training, but you learn so much more about being a pastor, pastoring people. You learn so much more about living and being in the military than being in the military. And being a parent, there's some things you can't learn until you do. The same thing is true for Israel. In a very real sense, God has been preparing them to leave slavery for years and years and years, throughout every hardship, every setback, every plague that he prepared for his people to leave Egypt. He prepared a way for their escape. And before he can free them, God tells Israel to prepare a sacrifice. He says, get a one-year-old lamb without plot or blemish and butcher it. He says, I want you guys to have a barbecue. Depending on how big your family, maybe just your family, maybe some of your neighbors. And, and you guys are going to roast it over the fire. That's how we know it's a barbecue. And when y'all get together, there's no leftovers. You've got to burn everything that's left over. And I also want you to make unleavened bread to eat because you're going to eat your bread quickly. It's going to be food on the go, right? You're going to eat it wearing your shoes with your staff in your hand ready to go. This is the original fast food, y'all. Food eaten, standing by the door waiting for what's next. Then he says, I want you to use a hessop branch like a brush. Dip it in the lamb's blood and paint it around your doorposts. And do not go outside. Hessop branches are medium-sized bushes. 
That's really what a hessop is. They're uh, bushes that sprout these purple flowers. And so thousands of years before Jesus drew any breath on the earth, his people were instructed to take bushes with purple flowers, the symbol of royalty, and dip them in lamb's blood. And to paint that blood on the doorposts of their houses. And it it foreshadows the Lamb of God that one day will come in this world to rid it of his hopeless addiction to sin. It's folly to those who are perishing, but wisdom to those who are being saved. You see, the Jews, they painted their houses to be delivered from death and oppression. But Christians paint the blood of Jesus on the doorposts of their lives that they might have him in it. Israel did it to keep God out. They sacrificed so he wouldn't come in. But the Christian sacrifices and claims the blood of Christ that he might come in. This is foolishness to people outside of God, but it's revolutionary to people who experience God's deliverance firsthand. But what would it have been like that night? What are some of the sights and sounds as they eat bread with no leaven, as they uh, smell the lamb's blood and they stand near the door hearing ungodly sounds begin to come from just down the road? What fear, uncertainty, and hope would have mingled in the air that night? God passed over Egypt. I don't want to get too deep theologically, but there's uh, two words in Hebrew. It's here in one other place, and people try to say that means there's something called an angel of death. And I'm just here to tell you that just ain't true. The evidence for it is really flimsy. It tells us several times in this passage that the Lord will pass over Egypt. It doesn't say the Lord's messenger. It doesn't say the Lord's angel. There's not some incorporeal ghost that's coming through As much as I love the Ten Commandments, that's not probably how it went down. God himself comes to pass judgment. God doesn't send someone else to pass judgment. He himself passes judgment. And when he gets there, he's out for blood. He saw his people enslaved. He warned Egypt with plague after plague after plague, and now he's out for blood. Ancient church father Cyril of Jerusalem put it this way. The blood of a silly sheep gave salvation. How much more shall the blood of the only gotten save us? If any don't believe in his power of this crucified Lord, let him ask the demons. For many have been crucified throughout the history of the world, but only one crucified person's name causes them to shudder. For those men who died, they died because of their own sins. But in Christ, he died for others. James Harrison was born in Australia in 1936. He lived a fairly ordinary life until one day it was discovered that his blood was special. You see, in his blood, he had a special life-saving element that could protect newborn babies from a specific kind of anemia. So what did he do? He donated. In his life, he donated blood over 1,000 times. Think about that the next time we complain about getting pricked. And his 1,000 donations... Saved over 2 million babies' lives. Newborn babies. His blood was literally life-saving. But listen to me. There is no blood in existence like the blood of Jesus. For his blood was given once, not a thousand times. And it was sufficient. And listen, his blood was given for the remission of sins and for eternal life. And y'all, God says you're going to create a ceremony out of this. For years to come, you will worship and remember what I'm doing for you right now. He's setting up the rhythms and rituals of the church and our calendar. 
foreshadowing the Lord's Supper. He says, in the years to come, you will tell your children that God, not an angel, passed over our houses and brought death to Egypt. And then he says, and that night uh, you will worship, you will wait, and you will hope. Have you ever wished, waited, and hoped for God to move in your life? Maybe it's an unanswered prayer or a health concern. Maybe even a family member that just waits and begs at the back of your mind, never quite allowing you to have a moment's peace. And that waiting and that praying and that hoping uh, is some of the darkest and most difficult experiences of our lives. You see, sometimes God doesn't do what we expect Him to do. In fact, He sometimes does the opposite. Sometimes you ask for freedom from slavery and he tells you to go worship him in the middle of the desert. Sometimes you pray a prayer for yourself that God would bless you and help you in a specific way and he shows you that your family needs something, not you. And in fact, he shows us that our whole society needs him. For it's not his will that any should perish. But we live in such an individualistic society, y'all. Where such an emphasis on personal autonomy is placed. You know, God might not always do what we expect, but you need to remember, He sees the end result. God sees His people delivered from bondage, and He sees us delivered too. He sees our churches moving, our health improving, our relationships healed, and sometimes those seasons of deepest, darkest pain become testimonies of tremendous victory. I remember I was like 14 or 15 years old, okay? And our youth group leader, he did something that... I can't even today understand why it worked. He told us, he said, we're going to take 30 hours and y'all are going to not eat. Okay, if you don't know, it's hard to tell anybody not to eat, much less a bunch of teenagers, right? Y'all with me? He said, we're going to do this 30-hour famine, which is really a fast, where we think about people that, that, that can't eat and don't have enough to eat, people who are food poor. And, uh, and then he said, we're going to sign up for different times to come to the church and pray or pray at home. And I remember doing it. I remember being that young and, and doing that just a little bit, you know. And I remember learning what it was like to fast and feel stomach pain and pray for other people. And I remember what it was like to wait to see what God would do through that experience. You know, and that's what happens with the people of Israel. They're waiting and they're praying and they're hoping. But how else does God free his people? Second, he defends us. Look at verses 29 through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. God defends us. How many of us have learned this truth in our lives? How many of us have really learned this truth in our lives? And, and God's way of defending us rarely shows up in the way or the time that we expect it to. But it turns out, that in all of Scripture, Psalms, Proverbs, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Revelation, and Exodus, God promises to fight for his people. Now, God does not fight battles like us because we think we're the hero of our story. No, but God is the hero of the Bible. God is the one who turned the Nile to blood. He's the one who brought fogs and bugs and hail to punish the people of Egypt. And he ended the battle with Egypt just as powerfully as he fought it with this plague. 
At midnight, the Lord himself struck down the firstborn of Egypt. From Pharaoh in the royal palace to the prisoners in the dungeon, from their pets and their animals and their children, no one was spared. That night there was heard such a cry that was unlike almost anything in the history of the world. That just as Pharaoh had killed the firstborn sons of the Hebrews at the beginning of the book of Exodus, God killed the firstborn of Egypt. Just as the Jewish mothers were broken and devastated by the loss of their children, the Egyptians were unhinged as well. What would it have been like on that terrible Awful night. Imagine the devastation and the tears, the heartache and brokenness. You see, short of suffering violence yourself, losing a child is one of the worst things that any person can experience. It is one of the worst traumas a human being can endure. About 10,000 children a year die in the United States from the ages of 1 to 14. Just the idea as I contemplated this, of losing my own son broke me in my heart. And just thinking about it now, it completely breaks me, my firstborn son. Now, I want you to think about Egypt's desperation. Hear the painful cries in the middle of the night, the screams of terror, as they wake and slowly realize that the firstborn son of each family is dead. Now, I want you all to do me a favor. Can you raise your hand if you're the firstborn son of your family? Anybody in here, firstborn son of our family? Now, look at that. That's a pretty good amount. Y'all can put their hands down. Now, imagine for a moment that everybody who had their hands up died before our church service was over. What would happen? Don't do it, Lord. But what would happen? We would be destroyed, right? We'd be angry. We would be sad. We would be devastated. We would be emotionally, mentally, and psychologically broken. And that's what happens to them. And, and, and they look for somebody to blame, just like we would. And, but, they, but they find themselves at the center of the blame. Listen, at this point, Moses is famous. Chapter 11 shows us that. People in Egypt know who he is. And they know that something crazy has been going on. How could you not know? Okay? And they know that this power dynamic has been going on and that their slavery, their arrogance, their kidnapping of people, their raping of people, their beating of people, their arrogance, their sin... Their destruction has brought this devastation down upon themselves. Broken by their own sin, they experience the darkest night or one of the darkest in human existence. But what plagues are targeting a god or goddess in this story? Now, believe it or not, Pharaoh himself is targeted. For Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. Pharaoh was worshipped as a god by his people because he was considered the greatest embodiment of the Egyptian religious and political systems. Pharaoh was said to be responsible for protecting and watching over all of Egypt. He was believed to be the physical manifestation of Ra in human flesh. They they understood that he was human and subject to weakness, but they also viewed him as a god. And they believed that he acted as an intermediary between the gods and the people. He was a representation and manifestation of the divine with connections to gods and when they died they would return to the gods he's even considered the son of Ra an attack against his son as an attack against Pharaoh a devastating blow to his rule and personal tragedy and there's even examples in the history of Egypt of kings whose sons mysteriously died 
So we don't know exactly what point in history this is, but there's at least one or two examples that support it. Now I want you to think about this. What if your whole life people told you you were a god? Hey, my wife compliments me sometimes. I know that's hard to believe, but um, I've never had anybody call me a god before. What would that do to you? What would that do to your arrogance and your pride and your self-image? Like, what if some slaves came to you demanding to be set free? Would you laugh in their face? Would you mock them? Would you ignore them? Now imagine, you acted that way and you lost your firstborn son. And in the midst of that pain, realizing that it's your sin that have set your people on this path of devastation. Make no mistake, when God judges the sins of all humanity at the end of the ages, our pain will be just as pronounced. And the pain of Egypt's searing loss, we find a reflection of our own futures if we fail to turn to Christ. For the Bible's clear, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and a brokenness unlike anything ever experienced on the face of the earth on the day that God judges and condemns sinners. And the Pharaohs believed there were God and the Egyptians believed there were many paths to God. And today we have neighbors and friends, co-workers and relatives who believe that there are many paths to God or many ways to spiritual fulfillment and we sit in silence. We feel that we're saved and we don't have to worry. They're just as lost as the people of Egypt, and we say nothing. But we must pray for the lost, and we must seek to see them saved, and we must unselfishly and unashamedly share the gospel message of our faith. And Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron one last time in the middle of the night. Come, go, get yourselves out of here, take your flocks and your herds, be gone and bless me also. Pharaoh wakes up in the middle of the night and there's death all around him. He begs Moses to leave. He retracts his threats and surrenders unconditionally. He accepts every single one of Moses' demands and an object humiliation asks his enemy to bless him. God's encounter with Pharaoh ends in complete and humiliating defeat for the enemies of God. His loss is total and his defeat is absolute. For God prepares and defends His people and ultimately He delivers us. Look at verses 33 through 42. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked, thus they plundered Egypt. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sekoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude went up with them, very much livestock, flocks, and herds. They baked unleavened cakes of dough that they brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for them. The time that the people of Egypt lived was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all people of Israel throughout the generations. God delivers. The entire purpose of God's plan, the direction of all redemptive history to this point in time, is directed towards freeing His people from a life of slavery. In 2004, New York Times Author Nikolos Kristof visited a Cambodian brothel. 
His desire was to purchase the freedom from women who had been forced into lives of prostitution against their will. Arriving, he had success immediately. $150 is what it cost for a woman's life. But the second woman he tried to purchase, he had problems. You see, the brothel owner knew he had him. So he demanded more and more money. And then the girl didn't want to leave. She didn't want to leave her jewelry and her cell phone. She didn't want to leave her personal possessions. And he had to decide if he would give more and more and more to free this woman from a life of forced prostitution. Eventually he decided to do it. Because in the end he wanted her not just to have her freedom. But the personal goods she had lived with as well. That's what God does for his people. The Egyptians were desperate to get rid of them. They're terrified because they think we're going to die if we don't get rid of these people. Because people are now starting to drop off like crazy. we got to do something. The people left in search of hurry. They don't have time to break bread. They've got this unleavened bread that's still in the bowls. they got mixing bowls. they got cloaks. They're wrapped up and they're ready to grow. And incredibly, they don't leave empty-handed. They go to the Egyptians and say, can you pay us for what we've been through? We call that reparations. And God blessed that and they gave. And it didn't make sense. But the Bible tells us that they got everything they asked for. And then he says they had favor. They found favor. You know, favor is one of those complicated things in the Bible, isn't it? Like when we don't have it, we want it. And when someone else has it, we are jealous. When someone works a job and gets paid a fair payment for their labor, that's wage. When a team wins in a sports tournament, they get a trophy, and that's their prize. And when someone is recognized for achievement, maybe they retire after a long career, that is an award. But listen to me. When you're given favor from God, it is not a payment, it is not a prize, and it is not a reward. It is an unmerited favor. It is a particular manifestation of God's grace. You see, when we find favor, we have little to no control over how it works. We have no control in some ways over who we enjoy talking to, who we connect with, or who we have favor in their eyes. I think about this all the time as a pastor because some people just like you and some people just don't like you. Now, most people are in the middle, but you just have so little control over the people that just love you for no reason. And that's grace. That's God's favor. And, and that's what happens. You see, just people love us sometimes, people like us sometimes, or they support us sometimes. Like for no reason that we deserve. And all we can do is thank God because he's given us some kind of favor. And that's what happens with Israel. God's people leave a life of bondage and slavery blessed. He gives them favor in the eyes of their oppressors and they leave with a good portion of the wealth that their slavery created. Now I want you to think about this too. They didn't ask for much as they left. No. Originally, Moses asked for their freedom and that's it. And all they wanted to take with them was their selves. And Pharaoh said no. And they wanted their wives. And he said no. And they wanted their children. And he said no. And they ended up paying a price that was so much greater. The lives of their firstborn children. But don't judge him too harshly. Because we do the exact same thing with our sin. I've seen it more times than I would admit. We ignore the cost of our own sin. We know we need to give up our addictions, but we ignore them. We know we need to give up addiction to late night snacks or anger 
revenge or bitterness, unforgiveness, demands of others, pornography or sexually suggestive videos on our phones or TV. And it's tragic because I see people come to me and they've been struggling with these issues for not days or weeks or months, but most of the time for years and years and years. And these sins wreak devastating havoc on people's lives because they ignore the cost that they're taking from them. But if people would have asked for help earlier, their addiction is so much easier to defeat. And see, in the long run, a lot of us are like Pharaoh. We refuse to see the increasing price that our sin debt is paying. And we love our debauchery so dearly that we would rather have it than have Christ. But we must run, not walk, into the arms of our Savior. So the people of Egypt left in droves. They left with provisions that they had not prepared. They took some livestock and some bread that hadn't risen yet. And that's basically it. 400 years they've been in bondage. And they thought God had forgotten them. But God kept his word and at the perfect time of his choosing, he delivered his people. Now listen, how many of you feel like God has forgotten you? How many times in your life have you given him prayers and left disappointed at an unanswer? In the beautiful pages of this story, God miraculously delivers his people from slavery. He has not forgotten you. God is never late. But like a wizard, he arrives precisely on time. No matter how deep our pain, no matter how many years our prayers remain unanswered, no matter how upset or uncertain or broken we are, God still delivers us, breathing hope in some of the most difficult circumstances of human experience. That night was a night of waiting for the people of God and for God. God lorded and watched over His people. He watched for their deliverance. He watched for their movement. And the people watched for the next miracle. And the people watched for where God would hold them and what they would get to see. And God's people continue to wait and watch today. We watch over people. I mean, that's just a part of loving them, isn't it? I mean, parents watch over their children when they're sick or playing at the beach especially. <laughs> Wives watch over their husbands, especially if they say something they shouldn't. <laughs> but husbands watch over their wives. We protect them. We watch over them. We care for them. And God the Father continues to watch over us today. But we also wait and watch just as God's people watch that day. We wait and watch not for a general movement of His Spirit. We wait and watch not for the shed blood of a lamb. But instead we wait for the Alpha and the Omega. We wait for the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one that was slain. The Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world will one day return to us and we wait in anticipation. On January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation legally freed the slaves. That means that as early as that date, African Americans were freed from a life of bondage. But during Reconstruction, many former slaves were forbidden from experiencing that true freedom. Customs and traditions and various organizations were started with the intent purpose to stop them from enjoying their freedom. Of the many tragedies of Reconstruction and Jim Crow, one of the most pronounced is that those who were free barely tasted their freedom for many years. But that same tragedy can be applied to the life of a Christian today. We stay in bondage to the flesh even years after we say we are freed from sin. 
Many of you claim to follow Christ and say you love Him dearly, but you don't want to put down your sin. Your anger controls you. Your work controls you. You are demanding. You are rude. You are selfish. You are forceful. And you claim to follow Christ. Do not waste the blood of His sacrifice. Do not mock the suffering of your Savior. Do not ignore the grip that sin holds over your life, but lay your burden down and embrace the goodness of His mercy and forgiveness. But how do we apply this message? First, recognize your worth. I don't know everything everybody in this room is going through right now. I don't know what emotional, financial, psychological, relational, or even religious hardship you're enduring. But I do know one thing. I know that each and every person in this room that is drawing breath right now is worthy of Christ's sacrifice. You know how I know that? Because he said you were. Because he did it and he said that you were. He purchased your freedom with his blood. Now you might be sitting here today considering every mistake that you've made along the way. But God says you were worth it. That you were worth the cost of his blood to secure your salvation, your redemption, and your freedom. Never forget how much you are worth. Never forget how valuable you are. Human beings, we can be so fickle. And even the best of our relationships are based on some form of reciprocation. Except for in Christ. So this is your sermon application. Take out a pen or a pencil or a smartphone and you need to write down these words. Jesus says, I'm worth dying for. And it doesn't matter what the person beside you says or behind you says or in front of you says or what I say. Because God says that you're worth it. Now, if you're worthy of his sacrifice, then you need to recognize how much he loves you, how much you are cared for, how much you are loved, and how hard he worked to secure that place for you. Write down those words. Jesus says, I'm worth it. Second, step out in obedience. Like, I don't know if you know it or not, because a lot of people will say God doesn't need you to do X, Y, Z, because God's God, He don't need it. So I'm going to say, you know who needs you to do something in your life with faith? I do. You know who needs somebody to do something in your life with faith? Your sister, your brother, your dad, your mom, your uncle, your cousin. We, we need it. We need each other to step out in obedience. We need to pray and be led by God to start new ministries in the church. We need you to share your faith with somebody you wouldn't expect. We need you to pray for somebody you might not want to. We need you to step out in obedience and do exactly what God places on your heart to do. I don't want you to do stuff out of a twisted obligation or wrong, selfish motive. I want you to step out in faith and do something different this year. Maybe you start sending little cards of encouragement when you've been receiving them for years. Maybe you start praying consistently for others and start a list. Maybe you start a new Sunday school class. Maybe you start a ministry to the homeless. Maybe you take a ministry over for somebody who is burnt out from doing it. But let me tell you something. Start doing something different and new. Because God is always laying things on our hearts. Speak to him today. And finally, live out your faith. And when I say live out your faith, what I really mean is practice your faith. If I said it to myself, I would say practice what you preach, but y'all don't preach, so I'll just say practice your faith. Live out your faith in a way that you believe God is reflected in your decisions. Because in the case of Israel, God slowly prepared his people to leave a life of slavery. He built them over time. And their faith allowed them opportunities to step out. Our faith becomes real when we start to live it out. 
So live it out. Living out our faith is when it's more than words on a paper, more than songs that we sing or sermons that we hear, but it is faith experienced and lived out and seen in our lives. Consider how God may want you to step out in faith today. This morning, ask God to help you recognize your worth. Ask Him to help you step out and to really, truly live your faith. Only you and God knows what that looks like for your life, but give it to Him. And if you don't know Him, I invite you to know Him. For the death of Jesus and His shed blood can destroy the grip of sin and selfishness that is reigning in our lives and allowing us to live a cleansed life in His honor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this story of your faithfulness after years of people wondering. God, would you draw your people? God, would you draw your people to respond? Father, they, were, they, they might respond in their seats or they might come forward. God, they might think about it later today and pray in their cars. They might look at what I made them write down and not believe it later and struggle with it. But God, however people are, are moving to respond to your message this morning, I pray you would meet them. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that they would cast their anxieties and their burdens down. And that they would leave here encouraged and uplifted by your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Brother Steve Wilkins, would you lead us in our benediction, please?